Hey there, and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 30 of the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name is Aaron Sinemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to have Dick Foth back with us for a session of Back Channel with Foth. And then we jump into our interview with Sherwood Lingenfelter, and we discuss his book, Leading Cross-Culturally. Uh, very insightful. Uh, I remember um, I talked to him a little bit about my courses in anthropology and to get to learn from him was a phenomenal opportunity. Dick, so excited to have you back with us. My joy. Always my joy. Dick, got two questions for you today. Um, First question, have you ever seen a team become so focused on the health of the team that they prove to be ineffective in doing their task? Uh, I have not. Hmm. But I have seen that tendency, especially today, And it tends to be, I think, a bit more generational because we live in a uh, collaborative environment. We live in a um, informational society where if I have knowledge, I, I want a place at the table. That's fair. All of that. But, um, I think, I think where I have seen that, it's sort of an overreaction or a strong reaction, maybe not overreaction, it's a strong reaction to what I will call mission demand. Hmm. Um, you know, my parents' generation were depression folks. Hmm. They, I don't think they ever had a conversation about the health of the team. They probably <laughs> never had a conversation about the team. <laughs> right? And so my generation, still mission-driven in, in a lot of ways, but in transition between strong person leaders to collaborative groups, yeah. you know, if you live long enough, right? Right. And, but, but I think, I think if we don't pay attention to the health of the team at any point, whether it was 60 years ago or now, we, we miss the point that the greatest asset of any organization is its people, hmm. not its capacity to raise a dollar or a florin, or a ruble, whatever, but the, it's, that's the key. Yeah. So I, I just think that leaders have to manage, they have to have enough emotional, um, intelligence Hmm. to, to say, how's it going? Yeah. And what can I do to help you get where we need to go? Yeah. On the one hand, but on the other hand, I think uh, we also have a job to do. Hmm. And so we need to have standards and protocols uh, in position descriptions and other yeah. things so that people know what's required of them and it's not just left up to the leader's whim. Wow. That's good. That's good. Second question, um, kind of on the same lines. How can a team maintain a healthy balance where they are healthy um, and but their work is also effective. I, I think it's like parenting. Hmm. Parenting is not an easy gig. We, we, think, we think it's hard when they're three. You know, <laughs> years old. Wait till they're 13 or 23, whatever. You know, I know we're supposed to stop parenting at 18. I don't know anybody who stops parenting at 18. Uh, well, it's very well. But the... In parenting, certain things just have to be done. Mm. 
if certain things aren't done, then the family doesn't work. Yeah. In an organization, if certain things aren't done and done appropriately and effectively yeah. and in a timely manner, yeah. it's not going to make it. Yeah. So that's the first part. I think there are two things at play here. Okay. One is calling. Mm -hmm. If somebody's called, it's very difficult to make them work harder. Hmm. You know, that's why we used to have volunteers come to the college to do projects. And you, you couldn't make them get up earlier or stay up later because they, they came to do something. Yeah. They felt called to do it. Yeah. So calling is one piece. Capacity is the other. Hmm. And so on the one hand, you have calling that, that draws me or drives me. Yeah. And on the other hand, you have capacity, which has to do with energy and skill sets. Okay. And, and again, leaders have to be knowledgeable enough about the team and the individuals on the team to be able to manage that again just like parenting yeah we have four children they're now our youngest is 48 our eldest is 55 yeah and when they were smaller ruth and i would have the we every once in a while we'd say did these kids come out of the same gene pool <laughs> no. so different. Yeah. anyway yeah Good, good word. Good word. Dick, always appreciate you ha having you on the podcast. We're going to go ahead and jump into our interview with Sherwood Lingenfelder, and we discuss leading cross-culturally. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. I'm so excited to be here today with a, a gentleman that I've read his book and studied his book and reviewed his book with uh, the lead team of the Indian Ocean Basin, Dr. Sherwood Lingenfelter. Sherwood, it's so good to have you on the Clarity Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you go ahead and just take a few minutes and um, explain about, yeah, a little bit about yourself and your background before we jump into a discussion on leading cross-culturally? Okay. Um, well, um, uh, many years ago, I got started doing consulting work with Wycliffe Bible translators. Uh, and um, I'm a social anthropologist by my background and profession. Um, I taught in the State University of New York for about uh, 15 years. And uh, one of the students in my classes was from Wycliffe. And because of, of her um, uh, invitation to me, I uh, decided to listen and respond to the Lord in that process and got involved with Wycliffe. So um, the the journey was one that um, has been more than 40 years, but wow. been a wonderful relationship with, with SIO International and also uh, learning so much about missions through that relationship. Sure. Um, I left uh, the State University of New York in 1983, went to Biola University in Southern California. I felt I had more of an impact on equipping people for missions at Biola than I had in SUNY. Yeah. And uh, God blessed there. And then I ended my career at Fuller Theological Seminary in uh, 1999 until uh, my retirement. Uh, and, uh, and I'm still a senior faculty member at Fuller uh, coaching a few students that are still finishing up. So very exciting. And, and Sherwood, did you grow up in New York? Is that was your, your connection with SUNY? No, actually, um, I was born in Pennsylvania. My father was a pastor. Went to elementary school in California. During, uh, elementary school again in Virginia. Then uh, high school in Ohio. And 
and Wheaton College uh, for my education. So wow. traveled around a good bit then. So yes. Yes. so it, it honestly your background in anthropology, you know, I took two classes in anthropology at the University of Maryland. And um to have someone who's a Christian and an anthropologist at the same time, um, my experience was not that. Um, it, my my professors were not uh, Christians, and so it was a it was a tr- kind of a trial by fire as we I walked through those classes in a, in a state university. So, yeah, just so exciting. Well, you know, I had the same experience. Um, I went to the University of Pittsburgh, and it was a they were very anti-Christian, uh, yes. but. God brought one man to that faculty member who became my mentor, and he was not anti-Christian. He wasn't wow. he wasn't a believer, but he said, I'll just help you to become the best anthropologist I can make you. And, wow. and that really was a gift from God. Yeah, for sure. So, Sherwood, just a, uh, a leading question. You know, we um, your book, Leading Cross-Culturally for Global Workers or Missionaries, whatever we want to call ourselves, is kind of a required reading it's so insightful it it helps us learn and grow and what it and i think the case studies is were really valuable for me as we've unpacked those the one about the strawberry project i mean i think most workers could probably put their whatever it might not have been a strawberry project but something very similar to that um we've all <laughs> have experienced that um what led you to write a book specifically on leading uh, cross culturally well um the, the story is long, but I'll make it brief here. Uh, the, the first catalyst was Bobby Clinton at Fuller Theological Seminary. Hmm. Uh, I was in a faculty at Biola University, and I was invited by Paul Hebert to be a part of Bobby Clinton's doctoral dissertation committee. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I served on that committee, and I really was impressed by the work that Bobby had done. Uh, he just was so profoundly thorough in his research and in his understanding of the field of leadership. And when we finished and he defended his dissertation, I thought to myself, we really need somebody like Bobby Clinton at Biola, who has a a real commitment to the study of leadership. And I looked around at our faculty and I realized that I was really the only one that was qualified to do that. And the reason was that I had done my research in Micronesia on political development among leaders in the small island of Yap in Micronesia. So I thought about it and thought, well, if it's going to fall on me, I guess I'd better think a little more about it. And so I started teaching a course at Biola on cross-cultural leadership. And, um, you know, I looked back and realized that the Lord really led in that because, um, you know, there there was no reason why uh, Paul Heber should choose me to be a member of Clinton's uh, dissertation committee, but the Lord led him in that, led me in that. And then the Lord prompted me to look and say, what how can you serve me in this area? Um, and I began to teach on this topic. And, and as I taught on it, I had students at Biola who came from many different backgrounds. And they were all, uh, m- most of them, well, I had undergraduates and graduates. The graduate students were already involved in ministry. Uh, and the undergraduates obviously were not. But it was, it was an opportunity for me to hear what was happening to people in the field. At the same time, I was doing this consulting with Wycliffe SIL all over the world. And many places I went, they were struggling with issues of leadership. And so they were asking me to provide a cultural perspective on this. And so that gave me some opportunities there. But really, as I taught and I thought about these things, um, I moved to Fuller in 1999. And and Chuck Kraft asked me to write a paper on 
leadership and what I was doing and that I did that, I didn't feel good about it yet in terms of what what it would look like as a book. Uh, and, and in 2006, I was asked by SIL to be a speaker at their conference in Papua New Guinea. And um, to be honest, I, I'd had very terrible jet lag the year before, and I didn't want to go to New Guinea. And so <laughs> but I finally said, OK, I'll come. I went there. And again, that was the Lord's leading. Uh, yeah. The strawberry story was told to me by a couple in New Guinea that uh, and that conference. And as I listened to them and thought about it and we discussed it together deeply, I realized this was the missing piece. This is why I had not written a book, because I really didn't have the right goal. The right goal was to understand that leadership is not about the task. It's about making disciples. It's about helping the people of God become the people of God. And that strawberry story, as we discussed it together, the couple, Jim and, and Jenny and I talked about this, and, and we all realized that, you know, he was just doing his job. But doing his job was not adequate because that's not what Christ called us to. Christ called us to making disciples. Christ called us to helping people become the people of God. And, and you know, strawberries was a great thing, but, you know, <laughs> they weren't becoming the people of God. Uh, and, and Jim and Jenny realized that, and I realized that, and I realized that was the missing piece in what I had been thinking about all this time. Before I left New Guinea, I had already dictated three chapters of the book because I knew that this is what the Lord had for me. And, and I began there, you know, I had to wait in Port Moresby for two days to fly out. And I just spent time reflecting on this, dictating. And when I got back, I was with the academic vice president. So my secretary typed up my notes and then I went from there. Uh, so that's how the book came into being. Wow. Wow. You share, you talked a little bit about, you know, the goal is making disciples um, and leading cross-culturally. You share that sometimes it's very good people um, who are practicing misguided leadership. How can misguided leadership affect or impact the planning of the church and the making of disciples? Well, you know, leadership is very difficult. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, leading people is much, much more difficult than writing about it. Yeah. I used to say to my students, it's much harder to lead than it is to write about leadership. Hmm. And, and really, the truth of it is it's very challenging because, you know, people have to decide if they're going to follow you. Uh, and, and so in this, uh, the truth of it is that most of us that really work to lead fail. And we fail more than once. Uh, and and so this issue of of how why do we do this? It's just because it's so complex and it's so difficult, and none of us really have all that we need to be able to do this effectively. But we don't want to fail. None of us want to fail, and so because of that, we tend to ignore our weakness. Uh, we we tend to think, okay, we we can do this, uh, and and you know if we have confidence and we really uh, want to do our job well, then we try to control things, uh, and we try to control things. We're clearly now moving into our own strength and into things that we think we want to do. We have anxiety about who we are uh, and why it's not going the way we hope it was, and and that need to control that anxiety about ourselves. Uh, and, and not recognizing that we need help 
All of those things are critical things that make it difficult. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think in, as I look back over my own leadership career, uh, the worst of my problems was that I felt like I had to do it myself. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I learned this as a kid. My dad told me you should do the job. You can do it on your own. You can do it yourself. Uh, and I love my dad. And my dad was an effective leader. But being thinking I had to do it myself, ignoring the fact that I needed other people, that I really needed to have them participate with me in this, teach me in this, uh, and trying to control things, all of that just led to failures. Yeah. And uh, so we can easily be misguided because of the things that we learn from good people growing up. Yeah. Uh, that's the challenge for me. Yeah, for sure. And then, um, yeah. And so you said that one of the most subtle and destructive temptations for a leader is arrogance. And I think you, you've kind of hit on that, that we can do it ourselves. We can do it all. Known. How does, how does arrogance and why is, why is arrogance? Honestly, I've never heard it um, in the books that I've read addressed. And I thought it was, it was impactful for me. It led to a lot of self uh, introspection um, or I guess that's a double day, but introspection to see how was I walking in arrogance and, and why is arrogance subtle? And then, um, and why can arrogance so be so um, destructive? Okay. I think that's a good question. And um in, in looking at this, first of all, uh, people want leaders. They need leaders. Uh, leadership is something that everywhere I went, people want effective leaders. Uh, and, and so um, they, they give us titles. Uh, and they expect things to happen because we're in leadership. Uh, and, and so with that, this, this pressure of the people that we're leading upon us uh, really pushes us in this direction. I remember when I became the provost and senior vice president of Biola, uh, I, I met with some of my faculty friends the next day, and my relationship had changed. Not because I changed. I was just the same. But instead of being Sherwood, now I was Mr. Provost. And, you know, there were expectations placed on me because of that change. Well, then... You know, as you lead, as you begin to do these things, we always lead out of our past. And, and, and if we've had some success in our past, we have confidence that we have. Okay, I, I've been appointed to this. People expect me to do this. So I should do what I know how to do. I should be confident in that. And so in this, these expectations are placed on us. Uh, then we have some experience and we have trust in that experience. We think, okay, this helped us get there. Uh, and so we we begin become confident, uh, at least some confidence. And then we look around us and we see that other people aren't performing at the level that we would like them to perform. And, and so then we become judgmental. Uh, well, you know, if that person would do a job better, if this person would do a job better. And all of this becomes a deception about ourselves and about others. Uh, and once we, we are deceived by this affirmation, by these titles, by our experience, by people around us not performing the way we expect, uh, this whole arrogance just creeps in, you know, and, and it's one of those kind of things where uh, nobody really wants to go that way, 
But, you know, these things combine together to lead us to a place where we think we know what to do. And we think that if we can get other people to do it, what we're thinking, then we're going to get it done. All of that's the wrong focus because really it's about God. Yeah. And, and the cross-cultural impact of that, you know, it's one thing in your home culture, I think. Um, but when you're leading on the other side, at least for me, leaving in a different culture, uh, the challenges are greater. And um, you, as you said, you, a lot of times you go back to what's worked in the past, but maybe what has worked in your home culture is not necessarily going to work in the culture that you're sure. at. And um, it is, uh, yeah, it is super challenging, as you said, leading um, is challenging and leading cross-culturally is, I think, exponentially. Um, more challenging. You uh, just some to, to gain wisdom from your your studies and, and your expertise in anthropology. Um, Christian leaders carry their cultural biases and their personal histories with them. What can we do to unlock or steps to unlock or step out of those traditional behaviors that we've carried from our our home cultures? Um. Can you help me understand a little bit more what you, you're looking for here, what you're yeah. thinking? About? So what I'm thinking about when I think about this is um, we, we, we bring our, the way Aaron, you mentioned one, your, your father had taught you, you can do it yourself. Um, I grew up in West Virginia. You can do it yourself. Those independence, those cultural norms um, that, uh, that I, as an American, as a West Virginian, I bring to the field. How can, how can I begin to see if, how can I step out of those so I'm not carrying those biases in as I look at a situation? Um, and we will talk a little bit about partnership and our biases, the way we per, I perceive partnership versus a culture that I'm working in. Um, hard work. What does my bias um, coming from West Virginia is, you know, you work hard uh, 12 hours a day, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and how bringing those biases into the context we're working at. How can we navigate those so they don't impact the leadership? And as you've um, eloquently shared, impact as we are trying to make disciples. Does that does that make any more sense? Okay. You know, I would say let's go back and talk a little bit about what it means to lead cross-culturally. Okay. I think that in, in thinking about that, the way I've defined it in this book is building trust. Building trust between peoples who come from two or more different cultures. Uh, and and the, this whole issue of building trust is such a critical piece, because if we aren't working to bring trust uh, among the people we're working with from different cultures, um, if we're really focused on getting a job done, if we're focused on basically accomplishing a particular goal, uh, we're way ahead of where we need to be, because until we have a community of trust, and until we understand each other well enough to know where we are together going, we, we can't move forward. We can't do this kind of leading cross-culturally. And so as, as we look at this, I've tried to, in, in the book, I've tried to develop this. First, we have to build trust. Uh, and, and if we're not learning what we need to learn, and if we're not understanding the differences in our people and helping them to come together in a trust relationship, uh, then we're not leading. Uh, we're just basically managing. We're trying to get things done, but we're not leading people. You can't lead people if they don't trust you. Uh, and you have to work at building that trust. Uh, my, my mentor, uh, 
Christian mentor Marvin Mayers always talked about the fact that the first thing that we need to do is build trust. Uh, and, and he said, before anything happens, do you have to deal with the prior question of trust? Do people trust me? Do I trust them? Do we have this trust relationship? And so I would say that the first thing we have to think about is, are we building trust? Uh, and then um, in, in looking at this, then once we have built trust, we have an understanding, we have to ask ourselves, is anybody following? <laughs> you know, if, if there's nobody following, we're not leading. And, and how is it that we can basically, in that trust relationship, encourage people to follow us? Um, you know, I, I've written another book uh, since the, leading in the, way, the leading cross culturally. It's called Leadership in the Way of the Cross. Hmm. Uh, it was published by Wiffenstock uh, in 2018. But in this book, uh, I have several chapters in which I talk about the issues that undermine trust, hmm. uh, the issues that get us off track. And then I talk about how we can rediscover who we are in Christ in that process. Right. And I think that um, I, I would just say this, that first of all, we have what I call termites of self. Hmm. Okay. Now, the, the termites are things that eat us from inside. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't, you, you, if, you, if you're in a tropics where you are in Kenya, you know the yeah. termites yeah. build tunnels. <laughs> okay. Sure. Uh, and, and they can tunnel anywhere. Uh, to get in and to basically eat what they want to eat. Yeah. Uh, this little island that we lived on in the Pacific, I pulled a Bible off the shelf one day and opened it, and it was empty, hmm. completely empty inside. The cover looked perfect, but there was nothing inside. The termites had eaten it completely out. And that happens in our lives. Yeah. You know, the termites of self take, eat us up spiritually inside, hmm. and they destroy us. Uh, and so we have to deal with those. We have to deal with our anxieties. We have to deal with our hungers. We have to deal with the the kinds of habits that we have that get in the way of our spiritual relationship with God and how we work in our relationship with Christ. And if we don't deal with those termites, you know, we're not effective. It's just they destroy us. And so uh, to me, I have to name the termites to myself. Hmm. I have to say, okay, what are they? And then I have to come to the Lord and say, Lord, help deliver me from these things. And, and so, you know, it's interesting. The doing it myself is a, is a termite for me. You know, I learned it as a kid. It's something that I, but I, it leads me not to rely on others. It keeps me from asking for advice. It keeps me from trusting the body of Christ to correct me. Uh, and all of those things are termites that really destroy me. And so in looking at this, um, we really need to figure out what, what are my habits? What are my assumptions? What are the kinds of things, my hungers, you know, my hunger for significance, my hunger for acceptance. How do they get in the way of me being what God wants me to be in this context? Uh, and then once we understand that, when we name them, then we can prayerfully commit them to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, where do I go from here? How do you, will you lead me in the next step? Uh, and in chapters 8 to 11 in this book, Leading Across uh, Culturally, that you're, we're talking about, uh, I try to, to deal with some of those issues uh, and, and what, what we can do uh, to basically 
uh, help us to to uh, become more effective. For example, the chapter responsible for responsible to. Okay, uh, one of the things that that I've found is that uh, I take responsibility for things that are not mine. That's one of my bad habits. Uh, and so in taking responsibility for things, I've taken away from somebody else and I'm not really leading them. I'm telling them, you know, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. Whereas if I understand that I'm responsible to them, but not for them, then uh, I then shift in terms of how do I encourage this person? How, what can I say to them that will help them to be responsible for themselves? How can I give them freedom to make mistakes? Uh, how can I let them uh, go on this journey with Christ themselves, but keep on coaching them in Christ as opposed to correcting them? Uh, and, you know, these are these are the kinds of things that I've tried to deal with in chapters 8 to 11 that help us to become more effective in leadership. Uh, and then the other book is there. If, if, if someone wants to go deeper into it, I try to go deeper in, in the leadership in the way of the cross. Sure. For sure. No, we will reference that. I'll put that in the uh, the show notes, the link um, to, to your second book. And uh, and um, I'll, I'll definitely pick it up myself and look the, the idea of building trust. And um, yeah, it's a it's challenging at the same time. You know, I think the least from my, where I come from, you get to the ground, you arrive, it's focused on the work. And, um, you know, I've seen that with teams, you know, teams will come and they'll maybe coming to build a church and the focus is just building the church and doing the job and finishing the task. But at the same time, um, at least the cultures that I've served in, it's the relationships and the trust and the, that is developed more than the building or whatever job they're doing. Yeah, you're building the church is a strawberry project. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It really is. It it's, is. It's strawberries instead of making disciples. Yeah. And, um, but it's just, it, it was uh, quickly we can get focused on that and um yeah but just a challenge once again to, to build the trust focus on the relationships and um yeah I, that kind of segues into my question i wanted to ask you about partnership um this was really fascinating for me um and uh as the the indian ocean basin lead team we've discussed this together about how differences different cultural impacts on understanding of partnership could you just share a, a few minutes about that well, first of all, tell me what what is fascinating to you about what I said about partnership. I'm not quite sure what you picked up and what makes it interesting for you. Well, and, and you had like a parallel in the book. You had this is, you know, maybe from a Western perspective, this is what partnership looks like. And from a, a different culture, this was the way they would interpret partnership. And so I, I just it was challenging for me because it really it spoke to me because I, I arrived in Madagascar and I thought this would be my definition of partnership. So I arrive, I'm the global worker, I'm the missionary thinking that my idea and definition of partnership, of course, everyone would have the exact same partner's idea of partnership, which was obviously not true, led to a lot of frustration on my part. It led uh, to a lot of assumptions and a lot of expectations. And I had never seen it clearly delineated. And I, the way you had in the book, it, it, it opened my eyes. Now, if I would read the book, 25 years ago, um, it would have probably, I probably would have had less stories to tell and maybe I'd have more hair and uh, what I have wouldn't be so great just because of the, the, the frustration, but it was culturally, I was once I was putting my expectations on the culture that I was serving in when it came to partnerships. Um, yeah. So that's, I think that's what I gathered from it. 
Thank you, Aaron. That's very, very helpful. I, I appreciate your, your reminding me of that and telling me what effect it touched you in this. Yeah. Here's, here's what I would say to, in, in expanding that with you further. Uh, the first mistake we make is that we don't sit down with people and have a conversation with them about what they think about partnership. Hmm. I remember uh, Judy and I did a conference for SIL in, in uh, Africa. Uh, basically, we did it twice. We did it in Cameroon. We had 14 uh, SIL branches in Cameroon that came together from Francophone nations. And then we went to Nairobi and we did it up at Brackenhurst. And we had, again, about seven nations that came together from East Africa. And so at both of those places, I put the Americans and uh, the, the SIL people in one room and the Africans in another room. And I said, OK, discuss together. What is the meaning of partnership? That was profoundly important. Because then we brought them back into the room and had them present what they saw partnership as. <laughs> and when they did that, they discovered for themselves radically different understandings of partnership. And, and that's where we make the mis mistake in the beginning. We don't have that conversation. What is partnership? What does it look like? Uh, and, and so if, if we would do have that conversation, we would, we would get to the place where we can begin to solve it. But the second thing is that even when you have that conversation, we talk past each other. Mm. I had a conversation like <laughs> this in Central African Republic, and I had it with the missionaries and with the national Africans. And, and they both of them said they wanted transparency in their relationships. And I listened to this and I thought about this. And finally, I said, you know, you African brothers, what does transparency mean to you? Uh, and transparency to them was about relationship. It was about how we communicated with each other. It was about this open communication, open relationship. Transparency for the Americans was fundamentally about money. It was about finances and being transparent about finance. None of them thought about relationships, none. Wow. They both used the same words, hmm. but the Americans were all focused about transparency regarding finances. And the Africans were all focused on transparency about our commitments and our relationship with each other. Wow. So even when we use the same language, yeah. we're not yeah. talking about the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. that really requires much deeper reflection. Uh, and so, you know, it, there, we have so many cultural assumptions that we bring to these issues and we bring those uh, out of our way of life. Yeah. And, and we, we assume that our way of life is the best. <laughs> and, and, I, and I, honestly, those, those African brothers, they assume their way of life is the best. And yeah. my American brothers, they assume their way of life is the best. Yeah, for uh, sure. And, you know, but they understood things so differently. Yeah. Uh, and then with partnership, you always have resources involved. Yeah. Uh, and you ask them, well, what is a resource? And for my African brothers, the resources were the people. Those are the major resources. For the Americans, the money were the major resources. And so their notion about transparency was all about these different things that they were talking about. Uh, so, you know, as, as we look at partnership, there's just so much misunderstanding. Yeah. And, and so little work going into trust. Yeah. Come back to building trust again. What are we talking about? How are we defining? Then once we know that we're defining things so differently and we have money in mind and relationships in mind, how can we come together? 
In other words, where do we then move and how do we have to compromise and how do we have to keep on clarifying with each other? Uh, those are really crucial issues. And, uh, you know, it's, and, and you can go on, you know, once, once you set up a partnership, who's in control uh, and which system of management do we use? You know, all of those questions become issues that just have tremendous impact. So, so maybe you have more be, questions. No, would it be the responsibility or the, a challenge then for the leader to be leading and having these conversations? I guess that's a, a question. No, you have to. If you don't have the conversations, you know, you just are going to go down the wrong path. Hmm. There's no question about it. Yeah. And uh, so the most critical piece for leading cross-culturally of any kind is listening and learning hmm. and bringing people together for conversation about their differences. Uh, you know, it's, it's, if, if, we're, if we don't do that, we just keep on making mistakes because we make false assumptions. Yeah. Uh, Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, hmm. has been one of those books that has influenced me so much. And Willard has a chapter in there called The Community of Prayerful Love. Hmm. And in it, he talks about Matthew chapter 7, do not judge. He says, with the measure, Jesus says, with the measure you use, it'll be used against you. And, and what happens in these kind of cross-cultural dynamics is we end up judging each other. Uh, and we don't do it intentionally, but we make these assumptions about what is right, because transparency is a real issue for us, but it, very differently defined. And so then we judge the other. They're not transparent because they're not judging on the same criteria we're judging on. Uh, and, and Willard says in this chapter that Jesus tells us very clearly uh, that we should ask, seek, and knock. And we, I never connected the ask, seek, and knock to the judging. Uh, Me but neither. When, when I really read this carefully, what he says to us is we can't have one kind of relationship with God and a different kind of relationship with one another. Uh, and in, the, in verse 12 in that text says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So would you prefer that you be judged on the basis of the fact that they don't even know what you're thinking? Or would you prefer they ask and, and try to understand you? Wow. It's really ask, seek, and knock that's so critical in partnership. Hmm. That if we don't do that, we don't understand each other. Wow. And then we end up judging each other. And then we end up doing what we think is right instead of what is right in Christ. And, and so this whole process, uh, you know, that, that was a profound thing because to learn to ask and seek and knock in our relationships and partnership, uh, we then get to the place where we can do others instead of judging them. But we typically don't ask and then we judge. Uh, uh, they're not transparent. Yeah. They're covering up. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they're really stingy. They're withholding what they, the, that we really need to go forward. And, and we make these decisions. We make these judgments and we feel like we have the right to dominate, hmm. you know, when, or we have the right to resist, <laughs> this is a self-deception on both of our parts yeah, for sure uh, and so uh, as we look at this uh, you know the the whole issue of asking seeking and knocking not judging is so critical uh to cross-cultural partnership
Wow. Wow. Sure, Ruben. I've enjoyed, um, I've taken more of your time than I asked for, uh, but I have enjoyed learning from you face to face. I've learned a lot from your book as we've read it over um, multiple times um, and uh, really appreciate your wisdom and insight. Will you pray for us today? Will you pray that we will um, take what you shared with us today? this ask, seek, and knock, um, and having conversations about partnership and transparency, and, and um, so that we can move forward, as, as you share in your book, um, good people, the good people go to the mission field, and good people want to help, but at the same time, if it's misguided, um, and we're not focused, on, if we're focused on a task and not making disciples, it's this good people, um, misguided people. So, would you pray for us? Sure. Thank you. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are are humble people. Lord, as you remind us so often in the scriptures, Lord, that there is none righteous, no, not one. And Lord, uh, in uh, our journeys, when you give us blessing and you give us success, sometimes we begin to think of ourselves as righteous. Lord, help us to be aware that uh, uh, when we rely on ourselves, we always fall short, Lord, that we... We never are able to just set, get free of the flesh that we live in and we dwell in and that we rejoice in that you've given to us. And so, Lord, I pray for Aaron. I pray for the whole group of people that he's mentoring, for those that would listen to this podcast. Lord, I just pray that you would lead us all. Help us, Lord, to understand that you are on our side, that you have forgiven us for all of our sins. Lord, that that we have grace, grace that is just abundant from you. And Lord, in that grace, if we just hear what you say, and if we try to incorporate it into our lives, Lord, listen and to follow your direction, Lord, you will guide us. And Lord, we pray that you'd be with us when we kind of get off track. Lord, give us people around us to correct us. Lord, help us to turn to others and ask them help that they can give us. And Lord, we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to remember that we are one body and we cannot do this alone. We must do it together. We do this because of you within your body in our relationships to one another. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for leading us out of darkness into your light. Lord, we just pray that you would guide us in this incredible journey that you've brought us on that we could continue to become more like you and that we could be about sharing the good news that you love a broken and lost world. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.